And now Don and Henry sit down with author Saul David. Really happy to be able to have a conversation with my good friend uh, Saul David, prolific military historian and author, author of too many books to name right now, but most recently the one very close to my heart, Devil Dogs, King Company 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines from Guadalcanal to the shores of Japan. How are you doing, Saul? Very good. Good to see you, Henry. It's good to see you. So for our listeners, Saul and I were on a panel together at the International World War II Conference back in November along with Richard Frank, and that that was just a fantastic experience, a fantastic gathering of historians and authors, and and, uh, it it was just great to spend time with you there, Saul. How have you been doing since November? Very good, actually. Yeah, and I came back, got straight uh, into work, finishing off a proposal and then uh, getting a new book deal. So uh, I'm energized, as you always are, Henry. Um, Even after, what, 15, 16 books, the start of each new book, you're kind of full of, you know, vim and vigor and you think, uh, great, can't wait to get out there. Congratulations on that. Yeah, that. so what what I wanted our conversation to be about, so I I don't want to pull you into, oh, let's talk about, uh, crucible of hell let's talk about okinawa let's talk about devil dogs i mean we can certainly touch on those things but this is just a chance to have a laid-back conversation with you i mean i i'm i'm always interested in an author's pro an author and historian's processes and how he does things and how he comes about what he's doing what well, if you want to talk about your latest project by all means let's do that uh, well, I, it's funny, actually, funny you say that, Henry. I, I don't not want to talk about it, but uh, my, okay. my, the in-between book, the one that uh, I'm not writing at the moment because it's already finished, but it hasn't been published, is, is a book called Sky Warriors about airborne in the Second World War. And uh, it just so happened that I think I was talking about it a little bit too much. And, and uh, maybe a coincidence, but someone else brought out a very similar book. Now, I'm not saying they heard what I was saying, but, you know, on social media, things get around. So I don't want sure. to talk about the new one in any detail, if you don't mind. I'm very sure. happy to talk about in general terms wh- what it's about. And it, it's Tunisia in the Second World War when the Americans first uh, come into the European theater of operations uh, and gain some combat experience. And, of course, the Brits have been in North Africa for a long time with the 8th Army. And then the 1st Army comes in. Uh, the Americans form part of the 1st Army. And you get this really interesting moment in the Second World War where the British and the Americans are fighting side by side for the first time. Well, I can't wait to, to see more about that and, and to respect your wishes on that. Let's respectfully step away from that, but I'm looking forward to it. I know our friend James Holland is probably that, – that's one thing when I listen to James and Al. You know, they – they talk about the med a lot, and that's a, a theater of World War II that I need to do more reading on. I need to get his book, Sicily, uh, because I've become – Don got me interested in Rogue Heroes. So I watched that, and I need to get Ben's book. But the med is a theater I just don't know as much about as I do the Pacific. Um, but – Sally, I think that's the way it is for a lot of, at least, American counterparts over here. We focus so much on the European theater and the PTO that a lot of us, I mean, I think out of all the living historians I know, only a small handful know anything about the Mediterranean operation. Yeah, and well, funny enough, our blank spot, as we've discussed before, uh, Henry, is the Pacific. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I say us, I mean the British historians and the British reading public. Um, right. The Mediterranean, we do know a fair bit more about, of course, because it's closer to us. But also it's where, as I just alluded to a second ago, it's where Montgomery begins to make his name. And and Montgomery's one of the two big 
British generals of the Second World War, the other being, of course, Bill Slim, who's fighting in Burma. So mm -hmm. Burma is really our uh, Pacific theatre in, in, in the sense that, that that's where the major ground effort was going on as far as British uh, and Commonwealth troops were concerned. Um, but North Africa is very important too. And, and if you think that the war starts in Europe in 39, uh, of course, there's the disastrous campaign in 39-40, and then there's nothing on the European mainland until 44 uh, that gap in between is where we're making our big effort and, you know, going back and forth, it's true, but eventually making inroads in, in North Africa. So in Britain's story of the Second World War, North Africa still looms quite large. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like the ha – have you done a book on the SAS? SBS. So that's yes. the uh, maritime version of the SAS. Yeah. So the equivalent of um, you mentioned Rogue Heroes, uh, that the, the full title, of course, is SAS Rogue Heroes. And that was Ben McIntyre's authorized biography or authorized history, sorry, mm -hmm. of the special air service in the in the Second World War. Well, no one had done an authorized uh version of the SBS, the Special Boat Service, uh, until I wrote my book. So it's a kind of twin companion. The two units, of course, uh, go through joint selection together. I don't know how much you know about the the formation of British Special Forces these days, but they basically, the recruits come from the same area and then they make a decision to go one way or another. They either specialise in water or they specialise mm -hmm. uh, mainly in land, I suppose you'd say. And, that, and that's the difference between the Special Boat Service and the Special Air Service. So they actually let them make that decision at the soldier level, and it's not made for them based on their skills. Yeah, they they I mean they have a yeah it's 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 really interesting. They all go in for joint selection, so they all go absolutely identical selection process, which as far as I know doesn't happen in the U.S. So the seals, for example, will have a se se totally separate to Delta, but we don't. Right. Uh, that's not to say that they haven't already uh, made up their minds as to where they want to go afterwards. They, Generally speaking, they have. It's, it is to say that the skill set as far as the training and testing is concerned is very similar. If you if you pass and are badged, uh, that is, you, you become you know part of the official regular regiment uh, or the service of either the SBS or the SAS, you then begin to specialise a little bit more. So the, the waterborne guys, the SBS, will, will then learn even more maritime skills, particularly maritime counterterrorism, which is one of their main jobs. And I don't know if you guys noticed a couple of years ago, there was a a tanker heading towards the shores of the UK that was stormed by SBS troopers coming out of helicopters and also scaling up the sides of the tanker. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. one of the very few occasions when the British public has seen the SBS in action, albeit it happened at night in quite uh, difficult sea conditions. So not a lot was seen of it. But anyway, it made the papers. Uh, and it was quite amusing because uh, officially our special forces don't exist. Yeah. They, they operate in a yeah. kind of nether, you know, and I don't think that's the case in, in, in America. And and so all the newspapers had to report that this were was a you know a, a kind of military formation, but they couldn't exactly say what they were. Yeah, it's kind of like our SEAL Team Six. They'll talk about vaguely their exploits, but then like, well, they don't exist either. They're just a number, <laughs> one of the different groups. Yeah, well, exactly. So tell me, you know, as I've gotten to know you, know your your areas of interest. I mean, I know World War II is a huge part of it, but. Talk to me a little bit about when you would go back to what got you interested in World War II. Was it just like for me, it was always there for me, as, as we've talked about. Was it just kind of always there for you, or was there a particular aspect of it that you latched onto from a young age and, and then it just blossomed from there? 
I think it was always there for me. Um, my grandfather was a, a naval officer in the Second World War. He, he was actually on an armed merchantman. I, I was looking into the papers not that long ago on behalf of my father. I mean, you know, it, because it's so close to me, I would never... I don't think I would specifically write about about uh, a relative. Um, mm-hmm. I like to keep a little bit of detachment. Um, I know it's entirely different from for, for you, Henry. You know the the emotional connection to the book and your father's story is is very different. And in any case, my father played a relatively minor role, but nevertheless, it was a very dramatic story. And the arm merchantman he was in charge of was called the Andania, um, which was pre-war was a very big passenger ship um mm-hmm. of course they bolted guns to the decks and and they used it for escorting uh, convoys across the atlantic and it was during one of those convoys that it was sunk he was the second in command the xo as as you would say in in the u.s parlance uh, and uh, of course would have gone down with it if he hadn't managed to get off at the last minute and then it was quite interesting when I was looking at the papers, I, I discovered it in the National Archives something called a court of inquiry. Now, you probably have a similar thing in the US Navy. If a ship goes down, there's a, effectively a court that has to decide on culpability, really. Right. I mean, it's a rubber stamping exercise. Yes, if they find people responsible and haven't done their job, they, they will make that point. But it's it's no sign of of culpability because they're holding the court of inquiry that's just what happens mm-hmm. and it was during the the court of inquiry that there there were a lot of complimentary remarks made about my grandfather now i knew him very briefly towards the end of his life when of course you know he he was old and gray uh, mm-hmm. and and it kind of you know brought him you know to life as a young man i suppose uh, fighting in war in a pretty desperate situation i mean going down in the in the mid atlantic uh, wasn't a good thing to be particularly if it happened at night which this did so he easily could have perished uh, in that action um my father was already alive so it w- w- wouldn't have been the end of me in terms of my bloodline but um right. it does make you think and that's what got me interested i think uh, first flagged up the story of the Second World War to me. Um, but also, just a last point on that, there were two pictures in my grandparents' house, so his house with my grandmother, and they were my grandmother's two brothers, both of whom were killed uh, as junior officers, second lieutenants, uh, um, in the First World War. So the the, the thought of the, 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 the conflict taking lives and the, and the sacrifice that families had to give to both World Wars was, was very much, I was very much aware of that growing up. Plus, I would think with your dem- your age demographic, since the three of us are relatively close in age, and plus where you live, growing up, it had to have been still in the zeitgeist. It had still be the visual impacts had still be there, opposed to our children, our grandchildren. Now it's so far away to them. But when we grew up, my grandfather served over in grave registration. We know Henry's father did, and so because of our age group, and when we grew up, it was still relatively fresh, especially where you're at. Yeah, absolutely true. And the the I suppose the proximity to the fierceness of the fighting in Europe and the and the closeness with which the Germans got to British shores, you know, famously the Battle of Britain stopped them getting here. But you know, they're only fifteen, twenty miles away. Yeah. Um and that's a pretty chilling thought. Of course, there there was a threat to the U.S. mainland. I'm not I'm not belittling that. But you know, if you if you'd had a huge and very potent Japanese force just fifteen, twenty miles away, mm-hmm. it, it really would have made americans think um it was bad enough what had happened pearl harbor and, and and you know and various attacks on on u.s territories of course but yes that proximity and that kind of understanding that it was a real a knife edge in the summer of 1940 to us 
being uh, occupied and everything would have been different you know we, maybe we wouldn't have been speaking german but you know it it, it would have changed our, our whole way of life and i think that that was still very real in in popular culture in comic books in in films that uh, and in novels um and all forms of of writing history and uh, and also fiction so the second world war loomed very very large in my upbringing um and of course having a personal connection to it uh, you know, brought it that much closer. Having said all of that, I was just one Briton, you know, of 50 sure. or so million. It, it just so happened that I had a love of history too. So it, it, it took me in that direction eventually. Yeah, it never occurred to me that if we were to take Japan and swap it out with Cuba and put them as close as Cuba is to Florida. That, that's a good way to look at it. Because I'm here in Florida, you know, Cuba's 95 miles. Well, I'm on the other side, so 110 miles from me. So if we were to take... Japan and swap with Cuba that would be similar in feeling of how close they were and how, you know, imminent danger could have been. Yeah, there's a lot of controversy. So, sorry, Henry. There's a lot of controversy about, about um, uh, you know, misguided in my view about Churchill and the role he played and whether or not he was racist and anti-imperialist and, you know, anti-Indian. And uh, But the reality for, for most of us living in the UK who remember that time, and certainly, uh, you know, our parents and our grandparents who lived through it, was that it, without Churchill, we almost certainly would have done a deal which would have, uh, you know, reduced us to sort of vassal state status. So... For that reason alone, he will always play an enormously prominent role in our history. Uh, and any idea of, you know, erasing him from the history books is complete nonsense in my view. But we won't get into the culture wars, I'm sure, in this <laughs> sure. discussion. But it, but it, but it does show you that, uh, you know, even now, someone as revered as him, who only 20 years ago was voted by popular vote. This is everyone in the country voting. I mean, uh, the greatest Britain that had ever lived uh, and that he's now under attack. I mean, it's pretty shocking to think yeah. that that's the case just 20 years later. Well, it, it, it to use words I guys like Don used earlier. I mean that that Saul. I mean that kind of is what's like you said. We don't want to jump off into that that right now, but that kind of thing is pervasive everywhere. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, yeah, with with Churchill, how how could anybody even question that? You had to have someone of his character, his his fortitude, his determination to steal everyone, you know, to steal everyone's resolve to accomplish what had to be accomplished. And some could possibly yeah. make the argument that if he wouldn't have had the great failures that he had suffered in the past, that he may have, the outcome could have been different because he knew what failures was. He didn't want to repeat that. And I'm sure he took a lot more thought and process when making big decisions opposed to maybe what he had done 20 years earlier. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, you know, I, I suppose it's always a slight difference, uh, the role of cabinet minister to, to prime minister, you know, the top job, so to speak. But but nevertheless, you're, you're, you're quite right, Don. I mean, his career is one of ups and downs. It's what makes the story so extraordinary, really. I mean, the, the, the uh, you know, one of the youngest cabinet ministers at the start of the First World War in a very important position, First Lord of the Admiralty, which is our Secretary of State for the Navy, uh, and, and then, of course, uh, becoming prime minister only at a moment of extreme crisis in the Second World War. Uh, and it's those few weeks immediately after that that are so interesting, because that is the point at which any right thinking person must have imagined that the deal was done for the Brits. You know, we'd we'd been roundly defeated on the continent. We would lost our only major ally at that time, which was France. Uh, and uh, America wasn't looking like coming into the war anytime soon at that stage, and of course doesn't for another 18 months. So all logic might have told you the game was up and you've got to do a deal with, with Germany. And there were 
very important elements of both the cabinet and the political classes who felt that way. And you might, looking back, you might have thought, well, I'm not surprised. But that sheer determination and doggedness to, to uh, uh, you know, never give in. Uh, and of course, his famous speeches, which we don't need to repeat now. I mean, it, it's all well known. And although we can't assume that every Briton, you know, as I've already pointed out, was thinking that, it does make us, I think, even now think, even in the early 21st century think, that was the best of the British character coming out at that point. We we have shown the nastier side of our character, our national characteristics uh, in times in our history, but this was definitely an example of the best side coming out. Well, that's what I was kind of wondering. It'd be interesting to hear the names that maybe armchair quarterbacks now could have said, well, this person was far more suitable to serve that role. Has any name throughout history been kind of put into that ring of, oh, if so-and-so would have served instead of Churchill, the outcome would have been maybe expedited? Well, you could possibly go back to some of the other major crises of, of, of uh, you know, existential crises of, of Britain's history to, you know, without getting too esoteric about it. But I've written about all of these conflicts, Don, so I'll just reel off a couple. Um, the War of the Spanish Succession, which is the war in which one of our greatest generals and military commanders, um, uh, the Duke of Marlborough, fought a succession of astonishing victories against the French. And the context, of course, is that the Fr French at that time were utterly dominant as, as a continental military power and it was looking like they were going to dominate the continent even though we had a relatively powerful navy it wasn't anything like as powerful as it became uh, and there was a real danger that if france dominates the continent uh, britain you know gets snuffed out really as a as a growing power uh, and what of course becomes by the beginning of the 19th century the most dominant maritime power in the world and retains that position of course until it's it's taken over by the US in the in the 20th century so uh, but I'm not, I don't mean specifically Marlborough actually interestingly enough in that conflict it was a guy called Godolphin who is the chief minister uh, back in the UK it played an absolutely key role in both supporting Marlborough and making it possible to fight a war on multiple fronts because the war of the spanish succession and i'm sure it's not a war that's familiar to that many u.s listeners was no. a major global struggle uh, and then of course you get the next one which is the seven years war in the mid-century which america of course is involved in because it's the war fighting up in canada uh, and it's the war that is a precursor and so interesting to what becomes uh, the American War of Independence, because at this point, the uh, the American colonists are fighting on the side of the Brits against the French in Canada. And, you know, we needn't go over that story again. But again, there was another kind of major political figure called uh, uh, William Pitt, the mm -hmm. elder, in fact, not the younger. The younger is the famous uh, politician of, of the um, Napoleonic Wars. So you've got those three characters, Godolphin, William Pitt, the the elder and William Pitt the younger, all of whom I would say would be, you know, in the frame for doing something pretty impressive, even in 1940, if you've transported them through history. Um, but I can't think of many others uh, during that period. You know, one or two interesting characters in the Victorian period, someone like Lord Palmerston, pretty impressive character, so possibly him too. But um, yeah, the, 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 the frame for people who could have done what Churchill had done, and maybe even they wouldn't have pulled it off, um, is relatively small. Wasn't, I mean, even before World War II was even over, though, Saul, wasn't there some negative opinion that started to form about Churchill? Yeah, I'm, I was reviewing Max Hastings' book about uh, the uh, the relief of Malta, the siege of Malta, mm. and the and the famous convoy that they took in to you know to save it, really get enough supplies in to keep it going uh, in the summer of 1942, and even prior to that operation 
election, Churchill is incredibly unpopular because if you move on from 1940, where, you know, he keeps us fighting and you move on to the beginning of 1942 and the succession of disasters that overtook not just uh, U.S. arms, of course, in the Philippines and, and of course, post Pearl Harbor, but also uh, British uh, arms, both in the Far East, the loss of Singapore, a disaster in Malaya, uh, but also um, a series of disasters taking place in other theatres, including Burma and the Middle East. So it just seemed to be one disaster after another. And there were movements in Parliament to there were murmurings and the beginning of dissent that might have meant uh, the beginning of the end for Churchill. And he himself, you know, that's not just me making that that assessment. That Churchill himself said that he he said, I'm getting very, very uh, close to uh, yeah, a possible removal from from power, and it's hard to believe that, isn't it? When we know what yeah. happens next, and we also put it in the context of 1940, but just goes to show you're never entirely secure. And even Roosevelt, of course, is feeling a little bit jittery in 44, I think, leading up mm -hmm. to his re-election. So uh, you know, and and certainly for those of us outside the U.S., Roosevelt seems completely um, you know unassailable politically, but clearly no one is. Well, to, to bring it down to say a foxhole view you know i remember my father and i talking about certainly you know they, they there was this belief that when roosevelt passed away in april of 45 that uh because my dad wrote about you know being on okinawa and everybody hearing that and he i think he respected roosevelt but he did not have this just total respect for him without question you know and he he always told me he said you know you you hear this pop these popular stories that everyone was weeping in their foxholes. He says, I didn't see that. I mean, he said, yes, he was the only president many of us had ever known, but we were just trying to get the job in hand completed, honestly. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because that is very much amplified in, uh, by the sort of cross-section uh, of opinion that I, I, I looked at when I was writing Crucible of Hell. So obviously your father's out in Okinawa at the time. And I was looking at the reaction of multiple different um, servicemen, you know, Navy, uh, Army, and of course, Marines. And, and there was a cross-section. Some were saying, you know, D disaster, woe is me. But I think more typical was your father's reaction, actually. Uh, and of course, you know, everyone has their own personal politics at the time. I mean, he, Roosevelt had been in for a long time. He was a Democrat. I'm not sort of going to, you know, we, we, we won't bring out the sort of political uh, divides that, might, that even some of the, you know, the, the, the soldiers must have felt and some of the Marines must have felt. But uh, obviously, he wasn't everybody's cup of tea. Uh, and yet, just like Churchill, because Churchill is voted out of power very soon after the end of the Second World War, as both of you know. So, you know, you might have thought, well, you know, where's the gratitude for, for winning the war? Because as soon as the war's over, then, you know, we, we've got to get the country back on its feet. And the feeling was, well, the Labour Party, equivalent, I suppose, in some, some ways, slightly further to the left of the political spectrum than the Republican Party. So equivalent, I suppose, in some ways to the Democrats. Um, you know, their best place to do this. Well, you, of course, already had it. Democrat um, um, uh, president. So, you know, maybe at some stage, inevitably, there was going to be a reaction to the re Republicans. But it does go to show, doesn't it, that even uh, an iconic figure like Churchill, uh, you know, and arguably Roosevelt, too, um, uh, you know, are, are ideal for war, but maybe not necessarily for peace. I'm not sure that does work for Roosevelt, but that was always the feeling about Churchill. It never really occurred to me until Henry just said that, but it makes sense that not so many of them would be that Heart, heartbroken per se because I mean let's think about it. these guys are watching their own personal friends die by the day and then they get the word that the president died well that sucks but 
I've been watching my friends die for the last year and a half. So I can I can definitely understand how some of them were a little shocked, but not torn apart as they like to romanticize in all the books about, oh, everybody was crying. It's the only president they ever known. I'm sure a lot of them were like, yeah, that sucks, but um, I'm trying to stay alive here. So you, you yeah, brought I, up... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, just one last point on that. I mean, Buckner's reaction was interesting because, you know, he... His main concern is that there was going to be, you know, so Buckner, of course, being the general in, o in Okinawa and, mm -hmm. you know, tragically gets killed at the end of the campaign. Uh, you know, the most senior U.S. commander to die in combat in the Second World War. I think there was one other lieutenant general who was killed, um, too, in France. But anyway, Buckner's reaction uh, only a month or couple of months before he dies is well who's going to take over because you know what do we know about this this uh, vice president and yeah. that's the other thing to remember we know what truman did afterwards we know about truman and the bomb and we know about truman and and uh the late 1940s the beginning of the cold war and you know and in many ways history's been very kind to truman and, and maybe deservedly so but at that moment in history in 45 we freeze frame that specific moment people didn't know who he was nope. so Buckner's right. main concern is, who is this guy? And is he capable of leading a nation in war? And more importantly, is he capable of supporting the servicemen uh, to do the job that we need to do? So that was his main concern, I think, rather than, you know, shock and horror that uh, um, the, you know, the head of the uh, military has lost his life. Yeah. To speak about, because you brought up Crucible of Hell, and I'm, I'm glad you did, because I read that last summer. I'm going to reread it. Because I want to shore up. I mean, my knowledge on Okinawa is pretty good. That's the portion of my manuscript I just am finishing up as I get the, to the end of my rough draft. What, and I love Crucible of Hell, and, and, and so I'm looking forward to rereading it. But, but what led you, because I just looked at a list of all the books you've written, and it, it covers a panoply of historical eras, as you just said yourself. But what led you to Okinawa? I know we've talked about K Company, what led you to K35 and Devil Dogs, uh, but Crucible of Hell, can you tell me about the formative process when you became interested enough on that battle to say, okay, I'm going to do my own book on Okinawa? I can, Henry, and it's reasonably straightforward, actually. So I, I review a lot of books. I, I, I find it really interesting. You know, I get to read a lot of military history anyway, um, sure. but reviewing forces me to get through stuff quite quickly, keeps me up to date with all the new stuff. Um, and, and this is the cynical bit of the decision <laughs> to be a reviewer, it makes it very likely that those national newspapers that I review for, the Daily Telegraph, the Times of London, are going to review my own book. So in any case, I was reviewing a biography very good biography of Truman. You know, I just mentioned Truman a second ago. And mm -hmm. it was really striking that the, the first chapter of that book talks about him getting the news that Roosevelt's dead. He's got to take over. He didn't know about the uh, atomic weapons program. Uh, he knew that they were fighting in, in Okinawa because they'd invaded nine days earlier. But all of a sudden now he's got to take charge of, you know, one of the greatest battles that American forces have ever fought, certainly the largest naval naval operation they've ever fought. Uh, and he's got zero experience. And it suddenly made me realize, hold on a second, the, the Battle of Okinawa it takes place at a really important moment in history, which is the war in Europe's ending, but it is no way is it even vaguely close to ending in the Pacific 
but for, of course, what happens next. But nobody in April the 10th, uh, or was it April the 12th, I think, when when um, oh. Roosevelt dies, April the 12th, nobody mm. at that stage, of course, even knows if the atomic weapons are going to work. So the assumption is, and this is what got me thinking about um, Okinawa, such an important battle. The assumption is that Okinawa is just a stepping stone to the next bit of the fight, which, of course, is going to be the Japanese mainland. And so if you, which you have to do as a historian, Take yourself into the minds of the guys as they are at the time rather than what you know happens next. Sure. It then becomes a much, much more interesting battle. Not just the last great battle of the Second World War, but the battle which materially, in my view, and I make this argument, as you know, Henry, at the end of the book, mm -hmm. affects the way both the politicians and the senior commanders are thinking about the possibility of the use of atomic weapons and uh, you know, I'm sure we don't need to go into the debate <laughs> in this program, but it, it, for anyone who imagines that there is absolutely no justification for using atomic weapons, they need to read that book, or at least they need to read a book about um, uh, Okinawa and what your father went through to understand why he made the point at the end of his wonderful book with the old breed. Um, I felt like I'd been reborn. I mean, I can't remember if those were exact words. And, you know, in some way, ways, he was kind of shocked that the, the war had ended. But in no way did he have anything other than approval for the use of nuclear weapons. And, you know, all mm -hmm. the other servicemen out there were thinking the same thing. Did you, in your research process, Workers Bull Hill, did you go to Okinawa? Because that's, I would, you know, I've been to Peleliu. You and James and I talked about that. And I know James, hey, we ought to get a trip to Peleliu, which I would love, by the way. But, um, did you go to Okinawa? I've never been. Yeah, I did. No, I, I would love to go to Peleliu, as you know, um, Henry. Um, but I did go to Okinawa. And uh, it's actually relatively easy to get to um, mm -hmm. compared to some of the other islands, Peleliu included, and, and Guadalcanal um, and New Britain, because it's relatively close to the Japanese mainland, three three or 400 miles south of the, mm -hmm. uh, of the most southerly island, Kyoto. Uh, and so... There were two things I'd say about visiting it. You know, in an ideal world, anyone writing about any conflict would always go and visit it. And I'm about to do a trip out to Tunisia soon, just going going back to that story. Um, but the, the 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 slight disappointment with Okinawa is that while in places you can you very much get a sense of the terrain and the coral rock and the the main bit of the fighting which took place in the centre of the island has been much um, built over now because Naha, mm -hmm. the capital, has expanded hugely. So right. it's re you're, you're really looking at the battlefields through an urban landscape. And, and that takes a certain amount of imagination. Right. Uh, and it takes a lot of wandering around with maps and pictures of how it was and trying to you know make out some of the features. Having said all of that, some of the famous features are still there and they're still uh, very visible. Sugarloaf Hill is not there where the 6th Marine Division, of course, is, is gets mm -hmm. cut to pieces. But but um, Hacksaw Ridge is still there uh, and some of the other major features. And particularly when you go to the south of the island where the Japanese made their last stand. And also when you go to the north of the island where the 6th Marine Division uh, first moved up with the 1st Marine Division in support, you get a proper oh, sense of yeah, exactly. Motobu, Motobu Peninsula. Peninsula. You, get, mm -hmm. you get a proper sense of the terrain and the climate and what it must have been like at that time. Closer to the to what what was known as the main battle line, the main uh, defensive position for the Japanese, it's much more difficult to get a, a, a proper sense of that. But, it, but having said all of that, it's still worth going to see. And there's a guy there who 
took me around who operates whose name uh, slips my memory for a second but it's in the back of the book i i thank mm -hmm. him in the back of crucible of hell but he showed me around he's an ex uh, u.s serviceman who still lives on the island um and he runs the museum there the okinawa museum military museum uh and it's it's fascinating to see and of course he knows all the locations so if you ever do go mm -hmm. henry i would i would recommend you you get him to show you around and and, and that i would certainly do I, one of the great things about the technology we have today is you both know this drone Google footage Earth. do what and drone footage there's oh, a lot of videos footage. on youtube now but google earth i mean mm -hmm. so you know saw when i when i when i read crucible of hell when i reread my dad's book going through on my own project you know the, a, a location that's just burned into my brain is half moon hill you know um which of course was one of the anchors of the, the pre-Shuri defensive line, I guess. Am, am I saying that correctly? Would you Would you agree? Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, that was. I was trying to remember the, the like, what did I call it? The main battle line, but the Shuri defense line, exactly. Shuri right. defense line, and I think so. Sugarloaf was more, I believe, further to the west, and Half Moon was more to the east. But my dad saw more action. Well, you know, Sixth Marine Division was was Sugarloaf, of course, but Half Moon Hill, he wrote up so eloquently. And I look it on Google Earth. I look it up on Google Earth, and it's it's like the backyard of somebody's condo. You know, it's it's so heavily built up <laughs> around there. And you look at Sugar. I've looked at Sugarloaf Hill, and it's like there's a coliseum there. You know, and I think there's there's like a little a viewing. I don't even know the right a viewing stand of some yeah, sort. Yeah, a can, plaque. Yeah, a plaque on a stand, and you can walk up yeah. these steps under an awning. You know, and it. It, of course, most of the obviously most of the the signage is going to be in Japanese, but um, it seems like there are a lot of, particularly around the Shuri area, which obviously Shuri Castle is there and it's a hugely visited uh, tourist attraction, I guess. But there are a lot of like walking parks and things like that with little you know little stone monuments and, and little signs and things like that and cave entrances, but. I mean, I still want to go there, but but it's it's nothing like going to Guadalcanal or going to Peleliu. Well, that's like we were talking about imagine. a few weeks back. Part of being a historian is like you don't want to wish a country's uh, progress and production and development, but there's part of you like, leave it alone. But especially on small islands like that, they can't leave it alone or they would have nowhere to spread out to. So that's that's the hard part about being a historian and wanting to see those battlefields, especially down there. It's like, okay, I get it. you got to expand and and you know provide housing and development for your population but it's hard sometimes when you see that stuff yeah as i say it's it's an unfortunate um uh, uh sort of collision between the geography of where the battle was fought in in 1945 and mm -hmm. the fact that naha city uh it, the main kind of urban area was so close to that naha of course you know being just across from shuri so you know, mm -hmm. but, but yeah, Don, Don's absolutely right. Interesting enough, we've got something going on in the UK at the moment that James is heavily involved with, and I and a, a number of other uh, reasonably high-profile historians have all signed a letter to try and stop the government from redeveloping Scampton Airfield, which was the airfield uh, that's gone into, you know, uh, mythical history in British Second World War history because, of course, it's where the Dambusters raid uh, originated from, yes. where 617 Squadron. Uh, was based uh, and they're about to redevelop that and turn it into a refugee center you no. know so people are up in arms about this and it's absolute 
utter madness because the original buildings are still there and there's also an alternative plan to redevelop and get some kind of aeronautical and engineering hub going there that could actually provide a bit of um uh, a, a bit of money and and jobs for the people of lincolnshire which is one of the relatively poorer areas of the united kingdom so uh, but anyway I, I mentioned that as an example of history that can be erased for you know for the sake of progress in inverted commas but uh, mm -hmm. i think there are very strong counter arguments uh, against that happening in this particular case i think peleliu is is certainly in 1999 it was pretty virginal um very little development there was a little bit uh, i remember i stayed at a place called the storyboard and it was basically a series of bungalow cottages um there's been more development since obviously but i still think it it's got to be the closest approximation yeah not not if you compare to like cape gloucester i mean cape gloucester i've looked at that on google earth and there's hardly anything to look at because it's it's just undeveloped jungle but mm -hmm. uh and you know peleliu does have its own population and of course up in the northern palau islands you've got karor and babblethought but um still even with what they've done i think it, it's just such a beautiful approximation of a a preserved battlefield if you will yeah if you look like, like guadalcanal from some of the drone videos they're doing down there it's on youtube it's like some alunga river and alligator creek are just going through people's backyards like right where it spills out where the where the sandbar was it's just now you just see houses all through there granted they're smaller houses but yeah a lot of that area has been developed and once again you're like oh, it sucks for historian purposes but there's people need places to live and they're the ones living there sure. now Do you think, Saul, do you think that there's still room for more to be done? Because I know so many books have been written about Peleliu. You know, like we were we were on the We Happy Few podcast here several weeks ago with Dick Kemp, who, who wrote Last Man Standing. Um, now, obviously, that focused just on the First Marines. But it, it, for, when I go back to my, my formative years, my father was talking about how Peleliu was a forgotten battle back in the 80s. And I know we've had this conversation before, but certainly now I think it's one of the better known battles. I don't think it'll ever have household mm -hmm. status like Iwo Jima, you know, or, or Mid or Pearl Harbor. But I think it has certainly been written about prolifically. I mean, do you think there's still room for more to be done on that battle? Well, I mean, uh, you know, as a historian, um, I like to think that there is room for a new book on almost any subject uh, every five or ten years. And the reason, of course, is that new material is coming up all the time. It still is, even from the Second World War. But more importantly than that, it's a kind of reassessment of the story. <laughs> and Excuse me. And that's really how history works, Henry. <laughs> mm -hmm. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Just get the frog out of my throat. Well, it almost comes down to replenishing. It almost comes down to replenishing stock as well, especially when it comes to new books. And you know, as time goes by, the older books come off the shelves. They maybe get pushed back or taken off the shelves. I mean, even the library on Amazon, wherever. And so, by putting out new books of the same content, even if it has newer content in which that context resides, it's one way of keeping that war that you know those people's minds fresh and. Henry, you may not realize this, but as far as Peleliu goes, especially anybody who was a big video game fan in the mid-2000s when World at War came along, 
when you're playing Call of Duty, you're running across the airfield. You're actually taking over. You can see the, the bunkhouse where the Japanese are laying up. And so you actually play on Peleliu Island on one of the campaigns on that game. So there's a generation of people who are in their 30s and early 40s now who they may not realize Peleliu from the aspect of the book and, and the series, but they know the name because they ran across it several thousand times while playing Call of Duty for eight hours a day for the mid-2000s. So, well, and I'm not much of a video gamer, but I mean, yet yeah, that does, I mean, we, I know, Saul, you, you're friends with Paul Woodadge. I know Woody and I have had this conversation. What, what do you do to make young people coming up have an interest in this kind of history? And video games are a medium to do that. Yeah, and it's um, you know, I was contacted not that long ago and said, you know, would I assist in the in the making of a new video game? I mean, and this never went anywhere. But the fact that they were contacting me as a as a historian, particularly of the Second World War, and asking if I would assist in the you know the sort of historical accuracy of video games tells you that they realise the market's you know very big to 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 get the historical authenticity, and I would be absolutely up for that. And I mean, I said I was at the time because mm -hmm. if if I can find any way to get people interested in in history, whether they want to read it as fiction, non-fiction, want to watch documentaries, want to listen to podcasts, or, or even want a game uh, and get a little bit of history out of it, I, I, it it's all grist to the mill for me. I uh, I I feel, and as historians, we we should be as adaptable as possible. I mean, some historians always are, are very kind of snooty about certain. Uh, you know the UK term snooty, kind of like yeah. a bit snobby about certain <laughs> certain forms of media. Um, but I'm not at all. You know, from when I started out as a freelance historian to going on to do a PhD and a bit of teaching, but really always thinking of myself as a as a writer of good uh, narrative history first and foremost. Uh, I, I was very open to the idea that you you would uh, use multi multimedia to 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 get the message across because. You know, we can see what's going on in Ukraine. I don't want to dwell on that too much. Uh, Henry, you know, I'm doing a podcast on it at yes. the moment. And it, it's grim, grim, yeah. grim. You know, if you think if you think the stories of Peleliu are bad, well, they are bad. Um, but, you know, there's some bad stuff coming out of uh, of Russia. And the reason history is important is because Russians need to understand their history, not the, you know, the, the, the completely bolderized version that they've got from Putin. The real the real story mm -hmm. of history uh the ukrainians too um and it it's not going to stop wars being fought but it might make people think a little bit uh more about the uh the need to invade your neighbor for example you know it's really hard for us to get our heads around in the 21st century that that's happening in europe uh, on the fringes of eastern europe um so yeah important history is important you know we, we all three of us i know agree on that um so it's a question of how you spread the word and and you know the more forms of media that you can do that the better as far as i'm mm -hmm. concerned not to dwell on a 10 year old game but the nice thing about the campaign mode is they actually had Kiefer sutherland doing the narration and in between missions they would have real you know historical clips and he would explain about the mud and cape gloucester and fighting against the um weather and the illness and so in between each level they actually injected history into it and it i mean the very first level of the match you're on making the toll and then it just goes through the history and they also include the russians contribution to the war as well but, um, you know, we've used to say this quite a bit on this podcast. It's been a while, and I, you truly don't hear it that much. When I was growing up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, it was learn from history or you're bound to repeat it. Somewhere in the mid-2000s, it's like, well, let's erase history, forget it ever happened, and then things, as you were saying, you know, the Ukrainians, the Russians, they need to learn their true history to help maybe prevent some of the stuff in the future. But here we are, running in circles. It seems like, it, it feels like that. It, 
I mean, you we, you brought up the point a little while ago. We, we spoke a few minutes ago about there's always new material coming out. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you if you are a historian who tends to focus on the Eastern Front, which when I was growing up, that was an aspect of it. I mean, obviously the Pacific, but the Soviet-German War, as it's properly called, I, that mm-hmm. just interested me almost more than anything. And of course, Russia was so closed when I, you know, coming up through the sure. '80s as I did, and then things opened up, and it seemed there were archives, more archival material. I, I think there's there's a historian who's been on Woody's show, Saul. I think it's David Stahl. I think is his name, who's written yeah. prolifically on mm-hmm. the Eastern Front, and Prit Batar also, and and i'm sure for them they feel like it's such a fluid situation on what is available because there there was i think an opening up of archives for a period of time and they were able to have access to new information but now i guess things have kind of tightened back up would you say yeah for sure they absolutely have Um, and you know and that says everything i'm afraid because when you have an authoritarian regime that wants to keep control of its history, the first thing they do is stop historians, particularly foreign historians, uh, getting in and seeing uh, the crucial archives. And the reason the, this is particularly uh, alarming as far as the story of the Eastern Front is concerned, quite apart from the rest of um, <laughs> Russian history, is because most of the German archives, as I'm sure both of you know, were destroyed in, in, in the bombing. So, yeah, mm-hmm. there are military archives in, in Freiburg uh, in southern Germany. I've been to see them uh, for one of my previous books. But they are so sort of – there are so many holes in them. When you think of the wonderful um, uh, resource we have both in the UK and the US, I mean, I've done some – you know, I'm coming to the States, as Henry knows, uh, for research in the not-too-distant future. And I, I've been there many times to the National Archives. It's just a wonderful resource. It's quite difficult to pin down what you want to get before you go there. <laughs> Once you're there and you're talking to the archivists, I mean, really, the the, the depth of information, uh, particularly in the story of the Americans in the Second World War, is second to none. It's absolutely mm-hmm. astonishing. And and the Germans simply don't have that, and the Russians aren't letting you see it. So right. in the end, if you're a historian of the Eastern Front, I would I would be thinking about maybe <laughs> moving into another area. I mean, I'm. I'm, I'm I, you know, joking aside, because obviously a lot of material is already out there and they can re rework a lot of that. But the mm-hmm. idea that you're going to find something new in the archives anymore, given the circumstances of, of the Russians uh, situation at the moment is, is, you know, is really alarming. I mean, Beaver, Santony Beaver has, has gone on the record, as I'm sure both of you know, saying, well, you know, I wouldn't be allowed to write Stalingrad now. Uh, and in any case, he's persona non grata in Russia today because of uh, his very justified conclusions about about what the russians did going into and he's not the only one who's written that of course going into berlin in in 45 and the way they behaved and of course we can see it happening again so if anyone's in any doubt as to what the russians are capable of doing um you know they only need to see what's going on in in ukraine of course there are as many people denying what's going on yeah. as there are you know right-minded people reporting it but we do fortunately in the in the west still have a very good and responsible press corps both uh, in america and and in the uk who are you know who are opening our eyes to what's going on and we're following this very closely in my podcast certainly so i want to pres- uh, say thank you for coming on the show today before we uh, wrap things up do you have any uh, plugs you want to get out there or tell people where they can find you yeah, just to uh, say a couple of things. The, uh, my podcast is called um, Battleground Ukraine, and that can be found on all uh, podcast 
uh, channels and uh, wherever you wherever you get your podcast. Uh, and to say that you know my last book, uh, um, uh, Devil Dogs, is coming out in paperback uh, in both the states and the uh, UK later this year. Henry, do you get anything coming down the pike? No, I'm, I'm, I know you need to to wrap it up and. And Saul's busy, and Saul, we so much appreciate you you taking your time to come on and and spend some time with us. Thanks so much, Henry. And and last thing from me, um, very excited to know that you're working on a uh, an expanded version of your of your dad's book, uh, your own uh, piece of work, of course, and also the possibility. I'm sure you've mentioned it on the podcast before uh, that there may be a reissuing of with the old breed with the unexpurgated, you know, extra material that was never used originally. I don't, I, I don't, maybe I shouldn't be saying that. Maybe you want to cut that out. That's no, an exclusive. That's not... <laughs> I haven't heard that's that. Okay. I mean, it, you know, it, it's, look, if I had all day, every day to work on this, you know, I think it was, well, yeah, we'll roll on that later. But I'm <laughs> oh. sorry. I, we're on Don's lunch hour, so we've got to. <laughs> no worries. Sorry about that. It's all no, good. It's, it's fine, really. I want to thank everybody for their continued support. And if you want to continue to support the show, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. That's WWII.com. And click on the Patreon link. Like, subscribe. It's only a dollar a month. It goes a long way to help uh, do things that we're doing here. And uh, once again, Saul, thank you. For myself, Jeff Copsetta, Henry Sledge, we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) 